This is Shine On, the health and happiness show, with new episodes every week on how to live well. Shine On is heard all over the world as a podcast, but it's heard first on the radio in New York's Hudson Valley. Hi, it's Casey. Thanks so much for tuning in to Shine On. Today, we're going to change the world by finding out who we want to be. Think about it. Who do you want to be? No matter what your age or station in life, right now, this moment, you can become who you want to be. How do you want to feel walking around in your skin? What do you want people to say when you pass by or leave the room? Today, we invite you to take a step up and take a step into the person you want to be. Sure, you may need a few adjustments. And the first adjustment may be your relationship to your work in the world. Whether you go to the office every day or you volunteer or you take care of your family, what's your relationship to all of that? Our guest today, Simone Stalzoff, wrote a book called The Good Enough Job. Even he is wrestling with the concept of finding the job that doesn't take over your life. And he talks about the very American concept, the belief that if you aren't getting ahead at work, you're falling behind. But many people I meet up with and talk to expect a lot out of their job. Some expect work to be, you know, mom, dad, and your boyfriend or girlfriend, too. And here in the United States, when it comes to health care, many people have a lot riding on their job. Many people hang around in a job they hate because they're going to get that pension. So we'll talk a little bit about work first, and then we're going to talk about who we want to become. But first, why did Simone Stalzoff sit down to write The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work? One is that I am a journalist, I'm a reporter, and I've been on the work beat for the last 10 years. And so I've observed how central work has become to not just mine, but so many Americans' lives. And the second was extremely personal. So I found myself at this career crossroads where on one hand I had this path to continue in journalism as a reporter at a magazine, and I got an offer to join a design agency, a very different sort of career and path. And it was through the tumult of having to make that decision that I started asking myself, how did work become so central to my identity? And I knew that I wasn't the only one. Yes, and you chose to stay with journalism? I actually chose to take the design route, which might be surprising. It's in many ways the best thing that's ever happened to my writing career because I was able to write the book in a job that I was not expending all of my writing muscles every day. And so there is a great irony in the fact that I wrote this book about the culture of overwork in America on the side of a full-time job. But as I wrestle with in the pages, it's not so black and white. It's not about caring less about your job or caring more about your job or following your passion or not following your passion. Our relationship to work is really nuanced. And it was through the process of reporting and writing it that I was able to, in many ways, create the book that I needed to read. 
Oh, you created the book you needed to read. Simone Stalzoff, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. It's just such a rich subject right now. I know so many people who are in agony over staying the career path or sticking it out on a job for a few more years. How did our work become so much a part of our lives? Yeah, I think there's a few different ways to answer this question. I think it is a particularly American phenomenon, a country where the Protestant work ethic and capitalism were sort of the two strands that entwined to form our country's DNA. But I think there's also a number of recent trends that have really put this work-centric society of ours on full display. For one, in the last 30 or so years, there's been a precipitous decline in organized religion and other institutions that once provided a lot of identity and meaning and purpose in people's lives. And even though those institutions have deteriorated for many, the need for belonging and meaning and fulfillment remains. And many people have turned to where they spend the majority of their time, the office. We could also look at some cultural factors about the way that we treat CEOs as celebrities or the incredibly individualistic culture that we have in the United States. But I think at the end of the day, it is the subjective value that we place on work. How so many Americans look for the pursuit of money and the pursuit of inner fulfillment to coalesce in the form of a job. This makes my head hurt because it really feels like you're striking a huge chord when you say work has become akin to a religion. You know, I've seen memes out there on social media that say your job won't love you back. But it seems that we Mm. ask so much from our jobs. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few risks with that mentality. I don't think it's necessarily a problem to look to work for a source of community or a source of identity or meaning, but it becomes very dangerous when it is the sole source of identity and meaning in your life. As so many people found out during the pandemic, if your job is your sole source of identity and you lose your job, what's left? But even not at the extremes, I think there is a major risk of neglecting other parts of who we are. You know, we're not just workers. We don't just exist on this planet to produce economic returns. We're also neighbors and friends and siblings and citizens. And one of the problems with a work-centric existence is that people can neglect other sides of themselves. Did you? Definitely. I think one of the things that I am wrestling with in the pages is this core question of the book. How do I personally pursue meaningful work without letting work take over my life? And, you know, over the course of reporting, it's a very individualistic pursuit. You know, my name is on the cover of this book. And so I've had to figure out what are the different rituals and routines I can implement in my own life to make sure that work isn't seeping like a gas into all of my unoccupied space. Yes, that sounds unhealthy work seeping like a gas. Can you share some of your rituals and routines? Yeah, so I think one way to start is just being very intentional about when the workday begins and ends, especially with the move towards remote work and hybrid work. So many people's lives and their work are blurring. And so one thing that 
I tend to do at the beginning and end of each day is have a little routine. I have a friend who has 13 stairs that goes from his bedroom down to his office. And every morning he says, okay, I'm going to take the 13 as if it's a train to begin his workday. And then at the end of the workday, he closes his laptop. A lot of the sort of natural cyclical nature of our days has been removed when we no longer commute or have an office to go to or attend. And so it's incumbent on individuals to draw some of these boundaries themselves. Another thing you bring up in the book is that in the U.S., our jobs have what you call outsized power. Why is that? I think one of the reasons why our relationship to work is so fraught here in the United States is because the consequences of losing work are so dire. When, for example, our health care is tied to our employment status, or for immigrants or people who are living here temporarily, their ability to stay in the country is often tied to their ability to maintain a full-time job. And so one of the things that I advocate for in the book is that at the policy level, both at the policies of individual companies and firms and the policy of our government, we need to weave back together the social safety net to make sure that our basic human needs and our employment status are not contingent on one another. If we're able to lift the floor, as was happening temporarily during the pandemic, a lot of people can find better jobs, jobs that actually value who they are and their labor. You say, too, we should find opportunities to trade money for time. What does that mean? I think in the United States, there is this idea that if you aren't somehow getting ahead, you're falling behind. And it leads to this mentality that we should just pursue more and more and more. And particularly in the U.S., the ability to consolidate money is very available to many workers if they are really killing themselves and putting their time into the office. But in actuality, the research has found that instead of making more dollars, instead of the marginal dollar that you might accrue if you were to spend a few more hours at the office, we actually tend to be more fulfilled if we are able to trade our money for time. So that can be both in the form of time-saving activities like hiring a babysitter for a night so that you and your spouse can go for a walk or a date without the kids, but also in the short term of thinking about the work itself. You know, there isn't always a direct relationship between how many hours we put into the job and the quality of work that is produced. And yet we still have a lot of holdovers from a more industrial economy that believes that that relationship is more direct. What is your relationship like with your job now? Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's shifted recently. So as I mentioned, I I used to work full-time and was working on the book on the side. And about eight months ago, I left full-time work in order to finish the book and and work for myself. And what I found, which might be common to a lot of self-employed or freelance workers who are listening in, is that I was my own worst manager. I was rising and falling with my professional accomplishments and feeling like I was more worthy on weeks that I hit my writing goal and feeling like I was an awful person if I wasn't as productive as I wish I could have been. And so it really became important for me to diversify my identity beyond just what I did. 
And as I started working for myself, it's become even more important to find communities that know me as more than just a journalist or an author, to find hobbies or interests that I'm not trying to monetize or turn into another form of work so that I can develop a keen sense of who I am when I'm not doing. Simone Stolzoff, the book is called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Do you have any final advice for our workforce today? I think in the U.S. we often treat work as the central axis around which the rest of our lives orbit. And rather than thinking about the job in the center, I would advise people to think first about what is your vision for a life well lived, and then think about how your job or your career can support that vision. Because too often, we start with the job and everything else gets crowded out. But if you really have a good idea of what you value and what you care about, maybe you can find a job that's good enough, a job that allows you to be the person that you want to be. That's Simone Stalzoff. His book is called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. And he leaves us with a question, which is where Kevin Kelly, our next guest, begins. Who do you want to become? Kevin Kelly is the founding executive editor of Wired magazine, writer, photographer, conservationist, a student of Asian and digital culture. And he's written a book called Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I'd Wish I'd Known Earlier. And in the book, that very big question, who do you want to become? Yes, we often think that we're working to acquire things, but we're really working to become things. And whenever you're kind of asking yourself, what should I do next? You, you want to ask yourself, well, who would I want to become? That's what they're going to talk about when you're not here anymore. I've been going to a lot of funerals, unfortunately, because I've been getting older and I was shocked by what I heard. The people in, in their eulogy, they don't talk about all the things that that person achieved, how many awards they won, how many books they wrote, their patents. They talk about who they have become whether they were kind, how they made people feel. Yes, you want to work on who you're becoming. You know, I think in life, so many people are so busy with what lane life sort of bounces them into. We work hard to get, you know, work and family and friends all balanced. But when you turn it all around and you say, who should I become? It makes you look differently at the path you're walking down because really we have the opportunity to become anything we want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Another piece of advice that says is you can be anybody you want. So be the person who ends meetings early. (laughs) Be the person who ends meetings early. That is some excellent advice. Tell everybody how you came to sit down and write this book. It came out of the fact that as parents of three kids, we did not actually give our kids a lot of specific advice. And I realized as I started to jot down things that I wished my parents had told me as I got older, that there was a bunch of things that I think we should say, just to make sure that that we said it. I realized that there was a lot of them. When I got 68 of them, I decided to give them out to my kids on my 68th birthday. They were so effective, and they liked them so much, that I posted them on my blog, they went viral, and I was encouraged to do that each birthday after that. And I accumulated a whole bunch of them, and people kind of, rather than troll through the internet to find them all, I thought, well, I'll put them together in a book, which you can hand someone. Here's what I discovered is that a lot of people say, you know, my kids don't listen to anything I say, but they will listen to you, and so I hand them my book. Excellent advice for living. Kevin Kelly, give us a minute or two on uh, how you feel about money. Oh, my gosh. One of the things I say is when you're looking for a job, don't take a job just because it pays the most money. Remember something that Walt Disney 
they had said, we don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies. So that's what I would say is, you know, don't create things to make money. You need money to create things, and that's important. It's kind of like gasoline, right? It's like you need gas to drive around, but you're not driving around to go to gas stations to see how much gasoline you can get. It's a, it's, it's a tool that will allow you to do things. You need to keep it in focus that way. You have another question, along with who should I become, uh, which really affected me. Another one of your questions in your book, Excellent Advice for Living, is would I do this tomorrow? What do you mean by that? So if you're invited to do something six months from now, whether it's go out to lunch with somebody or go to a conference to give a talk or to do something you have to promise, ask yourself, would I want to do this if it was tomorrow morning? Because we often say yes to things that are kind of far away without thinking too much. And then eventually it becomes tomorrow morning. And we're like, oh, I really want to do that tomorrow morning. So you want to kind of ask yourself that now. And that really helps filter out the ones that you truly want to do. So in terms of you know, keeping your schedule sane, that's a great tip. I love that. Would I do this tomorrow? And if you get that gut reaction that says no, you can give your apologies and not take the, on that assignment, right? Right. And speaking of apologies, you want to learn. This is a piece of advice that took me a long time to learn. You can give a no without having to give any reasons. You don't need to, to make up excuses to say no. Just You can do it politely, and you can do it in a way that actually makes people, you do them a favor by saying no. You, you want to say no firmly, and you don't need to give a lot of excuses. Right, and especially don't make up a fib, right? Exactly, right. It doesn't work for my schedule. I'm overcommitted. I can't give you the attention that it deserves. Thank you. Tell people how you found out who you wanted to become. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what do I want to do when I grow up. And, and that's true that I've discovered even for the most successful people that we would know, the, the you know, legends, people who are very famous, the billionaires and others, they too are still working on this question. By the way, having a billion dollars or being famous does not answer the question. It just actually makes it harder to answer. And so we're all kind of hoping and trying to work on becoming the best version of ourselves. And it's a lifelong project. We may never, it's not a destination. You don't kind of arrive there. It's a direction that you're headed into. So you want to ask yourself, am I headed in the direction of being not the best, but the only. And that's the direction you want to be headed into. We want to be headed into the direction of being the one and only? Yes, because you have some weird, unique combination of gifts and talents and life experiences that nobody else has, meaning that you have some genius that nobody else has that, that we want to share. But we're all kind of been persuaded by society and education, our family, that success is something that's, that we're trying to imitate. We're trying to imitate other people's success. And it's really kind of hard to shake that off of what, you know, the best student, what it looks like, or the best basketball player, or the best golfer, or the best mathematician. That, that kind of clouds our idea of what it is. But we kind of kind of want to be inventing your own version of success. And that's, that's a much harder path to take. And it's a high bar, and it's kind of difficult. But, but here's something I know. You can't truly become yourself by yourself. Weirdly, paradoxically, you need, the entire, you need everybody else to help you become unique. It's kind of weird like that. Give me an example. We're all becoming someone, but we need, other, we need our family and our friends, colleagues, clients and customers and everybody else to help us 
see who it is that we're becoming because we humans are just incredibly opaque to ourselves. We need other people around us to see who it is that we are and who we're becoming because we can't see it by ourselves. We can't get there by ourselves. So we need everybody else. You kind of takes everybody else to help us become unique. I get that. It's like other people give us the opportunity to practice our becoming or grow our becoming. To see who we are because we, we, we kind of, we don't have a good v- picture of ourselves. We, we don't have a good appraisal of ourselves. We don't know ourselves v- very well. We need others around us to, to reflect back and to say, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that, or, or they don't respond in some ways. It's just a signal that we're not connecting. And so by ourselves, we're just, we're a black box to our own selves. And we need other people around us to help see who it is that we are and who we're becoming. We are talking to Kevin Kelly. His book is called Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom, I Wish I'd Known Earlier, Great Gift for the Graduate. Give us your creep up theory. One of the things I really wish I'd known much earlier was this idea of prototyping your life rather than making grand plans that you iterate towards greatness. It's not too hard to make something, but to make something really great, you have to keep doing it and iterating it and making it closer and closer. You might even have to throw away a completed version of it. When writing a book, we call that the first draft. You make a first draft and you often throw away the first draft. Or if you're making furniture, you often make a prototype out of cardboard first or plywood just to make sure you have everything in the right dimensions in the scale. And that's true about life is that we're kind of iterating and creeping towards things that are better and better and better. And and it can be something as simple as when you're making a measurement and cutting something, you want to creep towards the line by cutting it more than once, time closer and, and more precise. So this is, uh, I think, just metaphorically true for our lives in general. Kevin Kelly, what do we do when we get stuck? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I do, when, that I've learned to do when I get stuck. One of them is when I have a problem, I tell my problem to somebody else. And often the sequence of just going through, describing the problem, I will suddenly get the answer. It would occur to me. And it's kind of weird uh, that why that happens. But there's something about that logical progression that illuminates things that we kind of knew but couldn't access. And so whenever I'm stuck, I I do that. The other thing I do is I travel to a place that I don't know anything about. I'm a true believer in in travel. Um, If you travel to somewhere that you don't know where, never heard the name before, you're likely to get a jog in your perspective, a little bit of otherness, a little bit of changing your mind about something being confronted with with something that's orthogonal to everything else you know. So travel to a place you've never heard of if you're really stuck. That's Kevin Kelly. His book is called Excellent Advice for Living. And if you're thinking of taking his last piece of advice, which is to travel somewhere you've never been before, perhaps you'd like to join me on a weekend retreat this summer. I've got one in July and one in August. I'd love to have you there. Join me at caseysplace.com to get all the information. So our work this week is to think about who we want to become. And I guess guess I'd like to become a little bit more like Ted Lasso's character if you watched that series which just ended. Ted was a guy who simply didn't respond to negativity or snarkiness of any kind. He simply didn't respond to it. 
It's such a magical superpower. And I've been trying that on a little bit. And I think I'll leave you with our thought for the day. And that's a quote from Higgins, one of the cast members of Ted Lasso. At the uh, last meeting of the Diamond Dogs, Roy Kent asked about being a better person. And Higgins said, human beings are never going to be perfect, Roy. The best we can do is to keep asking for help and accepting it when you can. And if you keep on doing that, you'll always be moving towards better. Shana. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show, with new episodes every week. It's your time to shine on.